Thanks, Megan. Well, greetings, uh, Bethany Greenlake. So good and right to be with you, uh, virtually even, to worship together today. We are in our third week of a series where we're looking at this word that is so central to the biblical narrative. Um, From start to finish, it is all over the place, and that word is shalom in the Hebrew. Often we equate the word to mean peace, and it is certainly translated that way in the Bible at points. However, one theologian I read this week made the good point that to express shalom as peace would be like calling the Grand Canyon a large crack in the ground, or standing at the foot of the Pacific Ocean and looking out and saying, wow, this is a large pool of water. Those statements are certainly true, but there is more to those truths. In a similar way, uh, this word shalom that we're going to look at today, it means peace. But to simply stop there would be to miss out on the sort of texture and the layers and the real dimension of that word. Taken as a whole, we learn that shalom really is this idea of the world as God created it to be. Whole, complete, connected. It's this persistent vision of joy and justice and love, and that vision touches on every single level of God's created order. So this week, we look at the texts uh, from both Matthew and the book of Psalm, because they offer us this important sort of window into what shalom looks like in one dimension of the human story, which is our soul. So we're going to look at that today, but first, let's pray together. God, we understand uh, in our mind that you created the world to be whole, to be complete, to be connected. And God, so often what we see uh, when we look around does not align with that vision. It's easy to lose heart. God, this morning, may we start with us. May we look internally. May we... Um, have a vision of our own soul that is so deeply connected to you that that word shalom is something that we know not just on a head level, on a cognitive level, but that we experience in our very being. God, we long for that this day. We trust that you will uh, meet us in that hope, that you will guide us, that you will shape us to be people of hope who go and bring shalom to a hurting world. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. So uh, that word soul, that's going to really be kind of one of the anchors of our conversation today, it can seem sort of abstract or vague. And yet when we read texts like Matthew 11, where Jesus talks about rest for the soul, we all sort of lean in a little bit. Like, yes, that sounds good. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but I want more of that. And most of us feel this loss as to how we actually access that sort of deep internal state of wholeness. Some of you might be familiar with the classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. That song uh, has long, uh, for a long time, been one of my favorites. When I got married, I actually walked down the aisle uh, to a slightly more upbeat rendition of that tune. And my husband didn't totally appreciate this. Some of you know it has the line, when sorrows like sea billows roar. He was a bit confused, but we worked through it. But um, part of the reason I love that song is because of the context from which it was composed. 
In the year 1873, a man named Horatio Spafford wrote the song after undergoing a series of deeply tragic events. He had invested most of what he owned in real estate in Chicago. He lost everything, including his home, in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. He had no insurance. Then in 1873, he said goodbye to his wife and his four daughters who were headed to England. And he stayed behind to sort of wrap up some of his business before he would head off to meet with them. But just days after the ship's departure, he received a telegram from his wife. The ship had sunk. His wife survived while all four of his daughters had perished. And this telegram simply read, saved alone, what shall I do? And so Horatio Spafford got on a ship, um, immediately went to be with his grieving wife. And when he passed over the very spot where that ship had wrecked, he composed the words to that timeless hymn, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, on the one hand, we hear those words and it's easy to sort of dismiss them as sort of this grieving man who is really out of touch with how he's actually feeling. But on the other hand, there's this tug I always feel towards those words. Like, I long for this deep shalom that is in touch with circumstances to be sure, but not dictated by them. A soul shalom that is grounded, that knows the experience of ease and lightness of burden that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 11. We've come through a heavy year on so many fronts. 400,000 deaths from a terrible disease just in the U.S. We hit that benchmark this week. Uh, In the U.S., we've seen violence motivated by racism right here in our city as recent as last night. Financial burdens and unemployment piling up. This weekend, my kids were just driving me nuts, and I couldn't help but think about the single moms and dads out there for the last year. How are you doing this? It's like you can hear Jesus extending that question from Matthew 11, are you weary? And globally, we offer this collective answer, yes, Jesus, yes, we are weary. And then my inclination is to say, come on, Jesus, do it, fix it, make everything right. That'll give my soul rest. But notice that's not what Jesus says. He says, come to me. (laughs) Not fix, I'll fix everything. He says, let me tend to your soul. It gets really personal. See, it's not the world made right that will bring shalom we so long for to our soul. It's Jesus. It's Jesus healing our soul and then enabling us to go out and be people of shalom in the world. And as I I sat with Jesus's words this week, I was utterly aware of how often I get that wrong. So as we dive into our text, uh, text for today, we'll find a great word of hope and comfort for us individually. But let's also keep in mind that it's never merely a word of individual comfort. It's always a word, as we'll see in the coming weeks, of calling, of, of transformation beyond ourselves. If Richard were preaching this morning, I'm sure he'd talk about the Fibonacci starting small and then spiraling out into the world that God so loves. But we began today with the soul. And so this week, we're going to look at three questions, both raised and answered by our text around this notion of soul shalom. And those questions are this, what is the soul? 
How is your soul? And how is the soul healed? What is the soul? How is your soul? And how is a soul healed? So as we begin, I want to start by offering some clarity around this question of what our soul is. About 100 years ago, there was a doctor who was uh, treating patients with tuberculosis. And he was conducting his own little study of sorts. And he found that seven of his patients at the moment when they tragically passed away, they lost a slight but measurable amount of weight. This led the doctor to believe that the soul, which uh, left the body upon death, weighs approximately 21 grams. Very specific number there. And then this theory went on to inspire a thrilling film that some of you might have seen called 21 Grams. And while it makes for some good Hollywood inspiration, this idea of the soul as this sort of non-physical, sort of immortal part of a person that is trapped in the body and then gets released at death is actually a concept that's rooted more in Greek philosophy than it is in what the Bible says. In Psalm 42 that Megan read for us this morning, the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. In the first couple of verses, the author writes, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my nefesh longs for you, O God. My nefesh thirsts for the living God. See, the most basic and literal translation of that word is actually throat. It's a very physical word. And it's interesting because when we list the essential parts of a a human person or human anatomy, we often jump to the brain and the heart, which are very important indeed. But if you think about it, especially in the ancient world, all of life depended on what came in and out of the throat. It makes sense then that nefesh also means the whole person. We see it translated this way elsewhere in the Old Testament. It appears over 700 times. It means life or self. And all of this matters because it helps us to see that our soul is not this sort of spiritual compartmentalized part of us that lives on after we die. Biblically speaking, our soul is all of us. It's it's our essence. It's how our personality and our DNA sort of come together with our story to form our unique essence. We don't have souls, we are souls. The late theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard sums this idea describing the soul this way. He says, what is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not your external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the center of human beings. So we understand then that nefesh gets at our essence as a person. And that's the first part of our answer to this question, what is the soul? But the the second part of that answer is that our souls are designed for connection. It's the essence of who we are, and it's designed for connection. We see this in Psalm 42. The author is using strong language in the same way a deer needs water in order to stay alive. So the human soul needs God. And this makes sense because if if we look back to Genesis 2 and the creation of humankind, man becomes a living soul when God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. See, from our inception, the soul is utterly dependent on God to survive, to to find its way. 
Some of you may have seen the uh, weather forecast for the coming week here in Seattle predicting possible snow. It's looking a little more like really, really cold rain now. But I love the snow, so initially I was thrilled about this. And this week I was chatting with my grandma about uh, the prospect of um, some fun weather, and she began to recall the snowstorms of her childhood in South Dakota, which you can imagine are very different from what we experience here in the Northwest. Um, And so she grew up on a farm. Uh, She shared with me that in the winter, they would have to tie a rope from their house to the barn because snowstorms were a common occurrence. And when a storm came, they would need a way to get to the barn to be able to feed the animals and then get back to the house. And so this rope became a lifeline of sorts because if they lost their way in the storm, it would be dangerous. The rope was an absolutely necessary guide. You couldn't make do without the rope. The rope kept them oriented towards home, towards light, towards safety. And as she shared the story with me, I couldn't help but think about the psalmist's words, my soul thirsts for God. The soul was created by God and cannot make do without God, cannot flourish without God. We need the rope. And all of this might seem very basic, but it's a necessary foundation as we transition into this second question. How is your soul? How is your soul? What's one word you would describe, use to describe your soul on this day or in this season? It's interesting, the Bible affirms over and over again that the soul is the essence of who we are, the most important part of the self that informs all of how we exist in the world. And yet I'm struck by how little attention we pay to it until it's utterly parched or or weary. It's said that Abraham Lincoln was notoriously disorganized and uh, so much so that he had this bulging folder on his desk labeled, if you can't find it anywhere else, look here. And if you're anything like me, sometimes it can feel like so little attention is paid to my internal world that it begins to look a bit like that folder, messy, chaotic, confused. I'm not even sure where to begin or how to answer that question. And I frame it very uh, personally on purpose. How is your soul? Often when preaching, it's sort of best practice to use the collective. How is our soul or what is it that we need? But matters of the soul are deeply personal because they are so rooted in our particular life and our story. Notice in the text from Matthew 11, Jesus extends this invitation to all those who are weary. That's the NRSV translation. The word also means straining or laboring. And the implication here is that we are working very hard, but still those efforts are not leading us to experience the soul shalom for which we were created. Now it's true that that since the beginning, our soul was made to live in connection with God, but it's also true that we are predisposed to look elsewhere for what we hope will bring shalom to our core essence. Again, we go back to, to Genesis. The original sin of Adam and Eve was not so much their disobedience in eating the fruit, But rather behind that disobedience, they believed the lie of the serpent, which essentially said this, God is not trustworthy. Don't trust that rope. And so instead of giving their soul to God, instead of believing connection with God is the source of soul shalom, they metaphorically let go of the rope 
and quite literally began to toil the work, the posturing of trying to find it on their own, which involves in Genesis 3, not living into connection with God, but actually hiding from God. And as we consider the state of our soul, the important question is where have we said in our own life, God, you're not trustworthy. And I know some of us hear that and we think, well, that's a good question for the lost souls, but, but me, I trust God. I've, I've got it together. I'm, I'm here tuned in with y'all worshiping every week. Trust is not my problem. And that may be true. And yet as humans, we are capable of great self-deception. As we pull back the layers of our own story in search of our soul, What we often find is that buried beneath the busyness and the self-deception, there's a soul that has experienced pain and is toiling extremely hard to keep that pain at bay. I'll never forget several years ago, I was part of a pastor's group that um, met together. It was coincidentally called Soul Care. And our first gathering was actually a two-day retreat on this beautiful vineyard in uh, Northern California. And so we got together, there were about 20 of us or so. And the first day of that retreat, you know, we were just kind of getting to know each other, eating food. It was delightful. Everyone was so accomplished, so full of great ideas and initiatives for their church. And then the second day came and we sat in a circle where well, our leader offered this same simple question, how is your soul? I'll never forget the first man who went shared that his wife had left him nine years ago. She'd left him for another man. And he said, I still wake up every day trying to prove to my family and my congregation and to her that she should have picked me instead of him. Nine years. Then he said, I've never admitted it to anyone until now. And I think I'm just starting to admit it to myself. And then every pastor around that circle shared and essentially said, I've been toiling instead of trusting and my soul is tired. See, from the time we're very young, we have a a keen sense that the soul is this precious thing, worthy of protection. And we also learn that the world is harsh and hard. And so understandably, we find ways to protect ourselves, to cover ourselves from pain, to hide. It's this attempt to protect the soul that led Zacchaeus to hoard his wealth. It's what led Saul before he encountered Jesus to persecute an entire group of people. It's what's driven so many in our nation into echo chambers and conspiracy theories. When you get down to it, it's the force behind evils like racism Classism, sexism, nationalism. Some of us earned very early that, you know, we must withdraw from relationships in order to keep our soul safe. We grew up in households where our soul couldn't be entrusted to the people around us. Then all of a sudden we're 52 years old and what once kept us safe, what once protected us understandably as kids is now keeping us from intimacy with our spouse or our children or with God. And over time, our toil sort of becomes second nature to us. So much so that we just say, I'm fine. (laughs) 
blinded by the actual state of the soul, but troubled by a deep weariness that we carry everywhere. And in the midst of it, here is Jesus saying, cast your cares on me. But what we find is that this invitation back to trusting, it's not a mantra for a coffee cup or like a cute little Pinterest pin. And it's certainly not a platitude. Those words, cast your cares on me, they are quite arguably some of the hardest but most important words and acts of our life. Why is that? Because it requires that we both discover, that we both see ourselves with clarity and then do the sometimes scary work of letting go of the toiling that we've been doing to save our own souls. Through our work, through our politics, through our ideologies, through our parenting, through what we eat and drink, through our consumption, through our religion, through the grades we get, through our anger. Our soul has been running on this treadmill of desperation, pretending it's okay. And the only thing harder than being on it is seeing how we're actually doing and then stepping off. Casting our cares. So often what we fear to lose and what we desire to protect are hidden even from ourselves. So often what we fear to lose and what we desire to protect are hidden even from ourselves. To be sure the truth will set us free will ultimately lead to soul shalom as we'll see, but that truth can be really hard. So I invite you today to reconsider that question. How is your soul? What treadmill have you been running on? Where has trust been misplaced? That's a large and hard question, but I promise it's worth our time and reflection because it will, as long as we keep pretending our souls, they keep dying, they keep eroding. You might start by considering some significant moments from your own life, perhaps thinking back on your story. What were the high points? What were, what were the low points? What did those moments teach you about the world and how to stay safe? What coping strategies or mechanisms did you adopt because of that? What did it lead you to believe about God? It might be worth inviting a a trusted friend or a spouse into that conversation. Simply ask, what do you notice in me? Where have I placed my trust? And that brings us to the final and perhaps most important question, which is this, how is the soul healed? How is the soul healed? To do that, I want us to look at the Old Testament text from Psalm 42, specifically verse five, where the author tells us, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. That word remember is where I wanna focus our attention. Literally means I call to mind. I call to mind. Jesus, when he breaks bread with his disciples, just before he goes to the cross, he offers that same invitation. He says, whenever you eat this bread, remember me, call me to mind. See, I think for many of us, it's easy to chalk this word Christian up to mean someone who believes in sort of the historical event of Jesus's resurrection. And yes, absolutely. That is a part, a central part of our faith tradition. But there's this deeper invitation that we see in scripture, which can largely be summed in this word, remember or call to mind. 
far from being this one-time commitment to a doctrine, it's this moment-to-moment commitment to a person. So that when I come to the moment of trial and we face these every day, where I'm sort of tempted to default back to the same old soul patterns of withdrawing or overdrinking or perfectionism or defensiveness, I instead, I actively remember there is another way. There's connection. There's, there's this rope in the storm that will lead me home. I've been reading this great book called Healing Wounded History. And in it, the author talks about he, the healing of our souls through this act of remembering. Here's what he says. He said, Jesus brings healing into our hurt memories as a powerful resource to change and deliver us from the destructive grip of the pattern of old stories. Then he quotes our text from today in Matthew 11 and says, this is what lies behind the invitation of Jesus to learn of him. The Holy Spirit enables us to understand lessons from Jesus's story, which we then apply to our own story in our quest to be transformed and made whole. In other words, we look to the life of Jesus and we see this deep and perfect connection with God, the father. And that connection enables Jesus to walk through trial after trial in his life, but not to lose shalom. That connection enables him to encounter hate and violence and commit to a higher ethic of love and not just commit to it, but actually embody that with his entire life. That connection enables Jesus to live into this calling of meaningful work without it ever becoming toiling. And ultimately that connection enables Jesus to overcome death with life. In that same conversation that I had with my grandma this week about the rope and the snow, she called to mind the story that her mother had actually told her also having grown up on a farm. She said that when she was a teenager, this is my great grandmother, and there was a storm, her and her siblings would have to go out into the South Dakota winter and, um, check on the cows in the pasture and help them get back into the barn. And if they didn't do this, some of the cows would encounter hay bales in the field and they would just stop because they believed that they had actually come to the barn. I guess cows aren't the most brilliant of animals. Um, But then they would actually freeze standing there, uh, freeze to death while they were standing there. So it was my great grandma's job to go into the field and to help the cow find their way around these hay bales and get back into the safety of the barn. Again, I heard the story. I was like, grandma, you want to come and just preach my sermon this week? She's a sharp woman. She said, sorry, I can't. I haven't had my second vaccination yet. I said, good. That was a test. But there's this apt image for us again, like our souls know and long for the same thing they've longed for since we were children. Safety, rest, meaningful connection. We were created, all of us, to know that. The great poet Maya Angelou says, of all the needs a lonely child has, if there's going to be a hope of wholeness, is the unshaken need for an unshakable God. We are all that child, all of us, every single person. And at points... We find ourselves standing behind a hay bale, sometimes of our own making, even if it's understandable, and we think it's the barn. We think we're home, but it's not. 
And just as the cold was wearing us down, Jesus comes in this tremendous act of love and grace, like Eric talked about last week. He comes in the flesh and he finds us and he says, my child, this isn't actually the barn. He sees us complete with our illusions and our conspiracy theories and our desperation. He says, follow me. Watch me, learn from me, remember me, call me to mind, be yoked, be connected to me. Let this pain in your soul be a doorway to my promise, not a path to destruction. So as we finish this week, I'd invite you to practice this spiritual discipline of remembering. It's not a quick fix, but it's, it's one way we respond to that soul invitation to come. It's one way that our, our souls are healed. One way that my soul sort of tires out is through back to performance and thinking that I have to be perfect in order to be loved. And this is absolutely connected to, to my story and everything that has formed me up to this point. And so one small way I remember is to literally say to myself before I come up here to preach, God, help me to know where I stand. Every time. I know that if I'm not careful, this pulpit becomes a hay bale of sorts, a way for me to feel accomplished. I get stuck behind it. The praise I receive becomes my salvation and the critique I receive becomes just soul crushing. Either way, I'm stuck. But that prayer I said just 30 minutes ago is one way I'm aiming to remember and to keep remembering, to know that I stand not, that I stand in God's love regardless of how this goes, that I stand with Jesus and his new life, even as I fail, even as things don't go according to plan. This week, as you pay a bit more attention to your own soul, you might just make a simple habit of remembering. I have a little note card on my windowsill this week in my kitchen. It simply says, hold on to the rope. Maybe this week, as you catch yourself falling into a particular pattern of blame or defensiveness or fear, you simply pray, God, I yoke myself to you. Even if it feels aspirational, just say the words. See, friends, we learn to follow that rope enough times and we find ourselves learning to live continually in Christ's presence even as we walk through challenge. Over time, we see our soul, our essence has landed in something deep and real, connected, complete, whole. Shalom. I'm going to invite the band back up and we're gonna end with the hymn, that hymn I talked about, it is well with my soul. And as we head into that worship moment, I'm going to, just reread our text from Matthew 11. This time I'll be reading from the message translation. And as I do that, I'd invite you to simply close your eyes if you're in a place where that's possible. Um, If you're driving, feel free to keep your eyes open. But if you're able, just sit for a moment wherever you are. And I want you to hear these words again, not as some lofty spiritual aspiration only for the most holy, not as some far off reality only to be realized when you get to heaven but as the gift that it is, as the possibility that it is for us today. So I'd invite you now just to simply be and hear these words of Christ.
Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly.